Hi, I'm Alan Jones, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi guys, Tom Clarkson here, welcoming you to another edition of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. So what do we got for you this week? Well, we're winding back the clock and celebrating one of F1's toughest nuts. He's a man whose no-nonsense approach earned him few friends on track, but he made close bonds off it, and most notably with Frank Williams and Patrick Head, with whom he won the World Championship in 1980. I'm talking, of course, about Williams' first world champion, Alan Jones. AJ was born into racing. His father, Stan, was a mighty fine peddler himself back in Australia, and Alan came to Europe in the early 70s to pursue his dream of racing in Formula One. He made it to the top echelon in 1975, and he had some celebrated team bosses along the way, most notably Graham Hill and John Surtees. But it was with Williams that Alan achieved his greatest successes. He won 11 races for the team and dominated the 1980 World Championship, in many ways setting the template for the archetypal Williams driver. Tough, determined and flat out all the way. I've worked with AJ for a number of years at the Australian Grand Prix and that's where we caught up a few weeks back. Never one to mince his words or tone back his language. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Alan, thank you for joining us on Beyond the Grid. Great to see you. I always see you once a year here in Melbourne, and uh, it's always a pleasure. You're only saying that because it's true. <laughs> of course. You're a legend. You were inducted as a, a legend in the Oda. Well, I know. And as I said to people uh, last night when I was inducted, well, I, well, I was a, one of the inaugural inductees into the Australian Motorsport Hall of Fame, and now I've been elevated to legend status. And I said, well, whilst I'll appreciate that, I thought, I've always thought I was a legend. Uh, and I've been telling my wife I was a legend since I've married her. But now, of course, <laughs> I've got a certificate. I can put that under her nose and show her. <laughs> well, look, AJ, let's, let's talk about the current grid. Who, who on the current grid is most like you as a driver? Nobody. Seriously? Oh, maybe Kimmy, I suppose, because he enjoys himself. He doesn't mind a drink, doesn't tolerate fools, uh, man a few words. Yeah, and he's, 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 a, he's a racer. So, you know, I like Kimmy for that aspect of it. But, but the trouble is, none of them are really like any of the old drivers, I don't think, to a certain degree, in as far as that now they've become too corporate. They're all running around with their hand over their backside. They're all too scared to say the wrong thing. Um, you know, I remember even years ago when, when the Chinese circuit was just opened and I went, I, was, I drove around it and to me it was too many hairpins, too, too samey, you know, typical tilky. You know, it was one, one, you'd, one you bend after the other, which makes for difficult passing. So I was talking to a couple of the drivers and um, the, I'd, I'd seen that they'd made some comments about how fantastic it was and so forth and so on. I said, well, I reckon it's shit. You know, I reckon there's too many hairpins. And they said, yeah, I know. But the trouble is we drive for this person, we drive for that factory and they make cars here or they sell these products here and we can't say that because we might offend them. Now, to me, that's silly because I think you really should say your mind. If you're asked a question, tell the truth and, and tell them what you think, you know. Sure. I mean, that's like trying to please all the people all the time. You can't do it. Yeah, well, you were certainly a man who spoke his mind. What about driving style, though? I mean, how would you sum up your driving style? Well, I, I thought, I mean, I, I think I was pretty aggressive. I think I was very much head down and bum up and go for it. Um, I took things very personally. Like if someone passed me, I took it personally. I 
never really worried about it, to me, if I saw a car in front of me, that was just an object to be passed. I mean, I don't, you know, didn't give any thought to who was, you know, to me it was just, it had to be passed and that was it. And, you know, in my day, if you gave someone the odd brake test or, you know, sort of touched wheels or anything, that was all just part of the deal, you know. And But now, of course, you've only got to look sideways and you're up there in front of the stewards with your barristers and solicitors and Queen's counsellors and computers and Christ knows what and, you know, you can't do a thing. You say you're, what is it? head down bum up but i mean do you think the cars were perfect for your career the skirts you needed a slightly aggressive style didn't you back then well yeah but i mean at the end of the day i mean i'd like to be able to think that i drove the 06 and the and the shadow reasonably well as well and they didn't have skirts i am a big believer in and they should get back to it concentrating more on mechanical grip and not making the cars aerodynamically dependent and i mean dependent you know, I'm, uh, I mean, they're not aeroplanes, they're cars. And aeroplanes have wings, cars have suspension. And to have a guy pull up and say, oh, I couldn't pass him for 35 laps because he was taking my air away from him, well, yeah, that's crap. I mean, you should be able to follow the guy as closely as you want and then get into a position to pass him. But all this, I better not get too close because my car might sort of understeer off because he's taken my air away from me. That's, that's stupid. And, and how many cars do you see getting around the roads with sort of, 14 layers of front wing out of their grill, <laughs> you know, and a great big rear well, wing out the back. AJ, the FIA and all the guys at Formula One are listening to you because, of course, that's all part of the conversation for 2021. It's late now. I mean, I've been, say, when you say yeah. they're listening to me, I've been saying this for about eight years. Yeah. <laughs> um, people go to the Grand Prix to see the personalities, the colour, the drama and, and the racing, you know, mm. and, and that's what it's all about. But they don't want follow the leader, you know. They, no one wants to see follow the leader, mm. and I think that uh, unless you're the leader, oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, get to the front, improve your position, and stay there. Yeah, but um, you know, and they're, and they're complaining about the cost of Formula One. Well, you know, they're running bloody wind tunnels twenty four seven, yeah, and they're employing a hundred aerodynamicists. Now, for a start, that would be an enormous cost saved if they run a single plane front wing. If have a rear wing, if if need be, have a have a a common uh, board underneath, and concentrate on mechanical grip and horsepower. Well, I'm sure this is all going to be taken on board by by the guys oh, at Formula One. But AJ, you're a man of clearly of you've got opinions, and I want to ask you now about Williams and Frank. And I, mean, I can only imagine the debriefs you had with someone like Patrick Head. I mean, why was it? Do you think that you got on so well with those guys, and you made such a formidable team? With Williams, well, I think it's because we were all of similar age. Uh, we certainly had the same goals, and we we realised that you know if we once again head down and bum up, if we if we sort of concentrated on it, we could do the job. And we had a single goal that we all were going to do it. We were going to get there. And um, you know, when I signed up with Frank, um, I realised that you know everyone used to take the piss out of him to a certain degree. You know, Frank the wank and all that sort of stuff, and. Uh, you know, why have you signed up with Williams? Well, well, the fact that it had Saudi written over the car had a little bit to do with it because they were the flavour of the month then and supposedly had all the money. Um, and then I met uh, Patrick and was unbelievably impressed with his down to... What impressed you about Patrick? Well, his down-to-earth, um, grounded um, persona and, and, and his aggression, even when you spoke to him, you knew he was a racer. You knew that that guy wanted to win races and I looked at 06 and it was a straightforward little car, really nicely built, beautifully designed. 
It wasn't a ground effects car, unfortunately, but it was probably one of the best non-ground effects cars of that year. Should have won a race in that car. We should have won Long Beach. Um, we got second at Watkins Glen. Um, the car was really nice to drive. Uh, and because we all, as I said before, we're all similar age, we all got on really well together, we all had a very single goal, and everyone just gelled, you know. I mean, Frank was fantastic. I mean, Frank is a master at, well, he was a master at handling me. He could get the best out of me without threats or promises. You know, he could he could bullshit me, and I was stupid <laughs> enough to believe him. And, you know, you, you'd throw yourself off a cliff for him because by the time he'd finished talking to you, you'd think, right, Frank, I'm going to get out there and go for it. And then, of course, Frank had a friend called Charlie Crichton-Stewart um, who sort of was my unofficial minder as such. And I'm sure Frank used to get him to rev me up on the way to the circuit of a morning. You know, but by the time I got there, I was on the rev limiter. But how how would they wind you up? What, what was it that you needed to get the oh, best out really of you? I didn't really need it. But, but to get I'm, the best out of you, AJ, what was Frank saying to you? Uh, well, it wasn't so much saying things to me to get the best out of me. I think it was probably, if anything, calming me down a bit, you know, because, um, you know, like if I wasn't going all that well, I'd come in effing and blinding and bloody, you know, fuck this and bloody thing and all this. And, you know, Frank would say, yeah, well, you know, she's right. We've got this to try and just, you know, settle down. We'll be okay. And, you know, it was it was very reassuring and, and just a great guy to drive for. And, you know, there was one occasion at Watkins Glen, actually, just after I'd won the World Championship after um, Montreal. And uh, I, I think I qualified about eighth, which was extremely far down the field for me. And I don't mean that big-headedly, but, you know, for what we were doing. And I said, Frank, I, this, this engine's down on power. There's no doubt about it. He said, all right, fine, we'll change it. You know, and he said, you know, if I don't believe you, I'm an idiot because I'm employing a bloke I don't believe. And I'm the guy that's paying you good money to drive the car. So if I don't take notice of you, who's the fool? So it's trust. Yeah, absolutely. So he changed the engine, and sure enough, in the warm-up, we went like about a second quicker. And and I noticed immediately it had a lot more oomph to it. Mm. And um, we ended up by winning the race. But, but now, that was the sort of guy Frank was. You went to Williams as a race winner. Of course, they were, they were, how can we say it? You know, Frank, as you've said, hadn't had the easiest run in Formula One up to that point. What reservations did you have? And did you have any other options at that point? Yeah, well, I mean, it was quite a funny story because I'd, um, I'd actually signed for Ferrari. And um, because after, after Austria, Montezemolo rung me up and said, um, you know, stupid question, would you like to drive for Ferrari? <laughs> Hello. Uh, I said, yeah, that'd be nice. So he said, all right, well, we'll get you over to meet Mr. Mr. Ferrari and you can have a talk. And this is what he'll ask you. And this is what you should say. And I said, right, okay. So he said, but we'll have to keep it fairly secret because um, we want to keep it as a surprise when we announce you, you know, which turned out to be bullshit because they were talking to other drivers. They just didn't want anyone to know. I said, okay. So I flew into Milan and here's this bloke in pale blue overalls with Ferrari written all over him with a bloody big sign over his head saying Alan Jones. Now, <laughs> that's the Italian way of keeping something secret. So anyway, he put me in the car and drove me down to Milan and um, or down to Bologna or whatever, and uh, yeah. he's obviously had the shits because, I mean, who's this young Australian bloke that they've got coming down when, when they've got me? And he's passing buses on the inside, and he was trying to impress me, and I thought, oh, I ended up by saying to him, listen, mate, if you don't settle down, I'll just pull up and let me out like, you know, you're a lunatic. So we got down there, and I, I met this guy in a Fiat 500 or something, and I thought, well, who's, who's, you know, a little shit fighter. Who's, who, have they, who have they sent out to meet me? And it was a guy called Pierre Lardy. Piero Lardi, 
And I didn't know that Piero Lardi was Ferrari's son. And um, anyway, the guy met me and he took me around the factory and showed me their own foundries, how they built their own engines and their own gearboxes. And I begin to think, well, I tell you what, even if they've got no intention of signing drivers up, they should all bring them down here and take them through the factory because it's enough to psych you out. I'm thinking, why don't this, this mob win every race? Because they were the first really to have like what, what was then telemetry, except they had it on the track. They had beams going into the corner, mid-corner, exit. So they could check your entrance speed, your mid-corner speed, and your exit speed. Well, no one had that, and they had their own track. So they took me, eventually, after I'd been to the factory, they took me around to Ferrano, and um, I waited in this big waiting room to meet Mr. Ferrari. And um, I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, these big double doors open up, and I walk in, and here's this guy sitting behind the desk, and he was as white as a sheet. I thought, he is dead. I thought, they've got me at weekend at Bernie's or something here, for sure, like, you know. And typically, he said, why do you want to drive a Ferrari? I said, well, because, um, you know, I think you, you would be able to supply me with a vehicle I need to become world champion. Um, would you live in Italy? Yes, I'd live on the North Pole if I could drive a Ferrari, blah, blah, blah. And off we went. He said, oh, well, I'll level with you. We're trying to get a Mr. Andretti to drive for us uh, because um, we'd like a North American to help boost our sales. But if we can't get Mr. Andretti, you're our boy. I said, oh, okay, great. So I actually signed the contract. I mean, money was agreed at the time yeah, and everything. Yeah, all that sort of was stuff. It good where money? I was it good money? Where I was going to live and all that, you know. Was it good money? Well, it was better than I was getting from bloody shadow. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it wouldn't have mattered in those days because it was Ferrari, you know, yeah, like yeah. bloody hell. So I went back to London. I said to my wife, look, if Andretti doesn't sign with them, we're going to go and live in Italy. And she said, yeah, okay. So I went, at that stage, used to be able to go down to, I think it was Paddington Station where you used to get autosport early. It used to, it was, I don't know why it was so early there, but anyway. And the headlines were Andretti signs for Lotus. And I went, yes, I'm a Ferrari driver. How good's this? So um, I didn't hear from them for a couple of days. And I thought, this is very strange. They've announced, Andretti's announced that he's signed for Lotus and they haven't rung me. So I rung them up and I said, hi, it's Alan Jones. And there was silence for about, it seemed like about an hour. And I thought, this is very strange. I said, when would you like me to come over? More, more silence. Oh, um, well, you know how Mr. Ferrari told you we wanted a North American driver to help our sales in North America? Yes, we have signed Mr. Villeneuve. I went, oh, good on you. Um, well, what do I do with my contract? And basically it was put where the sun doesn't shine, you know. So I said, right. But prior to that, like, it probably no different these days you know everyone's running around behind caravans and motorhomes talking to one another and would you like to drive for me yes I would and promising everything and and of course one of those was Frank because you know you 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 look at all your options if you're a driver and if I guess you look at all your options if you're an entrant so I've been talking to Frank so as soon as I got this bloody news I was straight on the phone to Frank and said Frank I've been giving this a lot of thought and I, I really would like to drive for you at what point he came back and said now look We'll have to keep this secret because um, we'd like to make this a surprise when we make the announcement. And I went, oh, Christ, there <laughs> we go food. again. <laughs> yes. uh, I'll meet you on the side of the motorway and you can follow me up to Didcot and I'll show you the car. I said, righto. So I met him on the side of the motorway, followed him up to Didcot, and there it was sitting there with Saudi written all over it. And, <coughs> and I met um, <coughs> Patrick. So we had a talk. Was that the first time <coughs> you'd met Patrick? Yeah. And we had a talk. And Patrick showed me the car, took the body panels off it and all that sort of crap, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't know whether we came to an agreement that day or not. I'm not really sure. I can't remember. But anyway, in the long and the short of it all, whether it was a day later or whatever, we we came to an agreement. 
and I was going to be the only driver because I was only going to run one car that Did year. Did that worry you? No, no, not no. really, because I, in fact, I quite liked it because, you know, I was going to be treated like a silkworm. I was the only driver. <laughs> so um, off we went to uh, Buenos Aires for the first race. Little did I know, I think we went to the first two um, South American races on Frank's credit cards. I thought he'd already got all the sponsorship from Saudi and it was all like, you know, wider than Cinemascope, more colourful than Technicolor, but um, I don't think he'd actually crunched the deal at that stage and I think we went down on his credit cards. <laughs> so we had some fuel vaporisation problems in Argentina and didn't finish, but then we went to um, Buenos Aires, uh, we went to Brazil, sorry, from, from Buenos Aires and I think I qualified at about eighth, got on the fourth row of the grid, and I remember Bernie coming down and saying to Frank, you meet a nice, nicer type of person up this end of the grid. And Frank was quite chuffed because I don't think he'd ever had a car up there. And, um, and from then on, we just off we went. We, I think the next race was South Africa or something, and I got fourth, and that constituted four points in the, in the Constructors' Championship, which meant money for Frank. Uh, and it was all looking, you know, we were consistently placing in the points and, and sort of qualifying reasonably well. And at Long Beach, I was actually dicing with Reutemann for the lead uh, until my front wing collapsed. But that wasn't the thing that really caused me to drop back, which most people thought it was. It, it was an electrical problem. And lo and behold, like with five laps to go, Reutemann spun the bloody thing anyway. So if I could have just stayed in second, I would have won it. So, but it was the electrical problem that caused me the aggravation. And that was, uh, I think I ended up six or something. Um, AJ, you remember it all very clearly. Yeah, well, you know, I wasn't wasn't doing anything else. So <laughs> no, but to I remember. mean, all these years later, it's and it's um, but I remember, I'd, I'd actually bought a house where I was living next to Bill Simpson, and uh, we decided to have a from Simpson Safety Equipment. We decided to have a party on the Sunday night after the race, and um, all these young princes turned up for the race. And in those days, they had the briefcases where they could ring mum and dad back in Saudi, and we thought, well, how good, like how bit James Bondish, you know. So I invited them up to the party and um, I said to Frank, we're having a, f a party up there, do you want to come up? He said, oh, no, because Frank, you know, never smoked, never ran, didn't do anything, didn't drink anything. He said, no. I said, oh, okay, so it's just that most of the young princes are coming up. Oh, well, well, what's the address? So, <laughs> so, so anyway, he came up and uh, he was sitting on the lounge twiddling his thumbs and they were late. They didn't get there until late and he was just about to get up and go and all these big limos pulled up, so he plonked his bum down very quick smart and um one of them said to me alan can i can i see you and i said yeah and he said can we go somewhere private and i went Gee, what's all this about yeah yeah sure he said uh, we were very happy with the way you went today you uh put the saudi name up because you were dicing with ferrari and, and we know you had problems but we'd just like to give you a small token of our appreciation for what you did and he handed me an envelope and i said oh there's no need for that putting it in the top pocket at a thousand mile an hour Anyway, I snuck into the bedroom after I'd stopped talking to him. It was 10 grand US cash. And in 1978, that was a fair bit of dough. So I thought, I think I might have chosen the right thing here. <laughs> yeah. So I went back in the party. Anyway, from that time on, we, we enjoyed a bit of success. And as I yeah. said, you know, we got the odd place. And we had a lot of um, mechanical failures, gearbox problems and so forth. And I think that's what um, really taught Frank about life in you know, componentry and really concentrating on reliability. And then um, when 06 came out, uh, it turned out to be a bit of a weapon. They brought it over to America and we tested it on Ontario Motor Speedway on the Monday after the race. 
And I went up there and hopped in it, and after about four laps, I thought, Christ, how long's all this been going on? No wonder bloody Andretti and Ronnie Peterson are winning these races. I couldn't believe how late I could break into the corner and how early I could get onto the accelerator. And um, I came in, I, oh, well, I just did one observe, observation lap, obviously, just to check all the plumbing and everything. But after about four or five running laps, I came into Patrick and I said, mate, this is unbelievable, you know, which didn't displease him. <laughs> Uh, and then we spent that sort of day testing the car and just fine-tuning it, and I went away very, very happy because I thought they've definitely given me a weapon here, I reckon. And um, in that year, um, I out-qualified Ferrari just about all the time, and when I used to drive down pit lane and they were working on their cars, I'd give them a little wave. Now, I might have only used one finger, but it was a wave. Uh, so I thought, there's karma for you. Yeah. Um, and, of course, 06 turned out to be a great car. We didn't win the championship that year because that stupid bloody rule they had where you had to count your best five races in the first half and your best five races in the second half. Um, so that put paid to me winning the championship. It was basically all over by the first half. Did um, did Frank give you any choice of teammate? I mean, obviously, Clay Regazzoni was the guy that came He always on. asked me. He said, um, you know, what do you think about Clay? What do you think about uh, Carlos? It never worried me. I always used to turn around and say, Frank, I don't give. I don't give a shit. Get whoever you want because I'm going to have to race them anyway, irrespective whether they're in a Williams or whether they're, whatever they're in. You're the boss. You, you, you pick whoever you want to be in the car. Um, and, you know, to a certain degree, most of it was true. But a lot of it was a bit of bravado, just to show Frank that I wasn't scared of anybody, uh, which I think impressed him. Um, so, and Clay was a great teammate. You know, Clay was happy, go lucky. He was no, not complaining, and uh, uh, and all the rest of it. I'm a bit pissed off that he won Frank's first ever Grand Prix. That's, that was going to be my next question because you were comfortably faster than him. So, oh, how painful was it that Silverstone well, race? I mean, I was on pole by nearly a second and a half, and. Um, I did a pretty ordinary start, then by the end of the first lap I'd got back into the lead, and then at that stage I, I built up a 20-second lead, and they'd altered the uh, converter, the water converter, thinned it out or did something, because they'd made a bit of an alteration to the back of the car. They'd put this aluminium section on that gave it unbelievably more downforce. I couldn't believe it, because when we were testing the week earlier, Patrick said, I just want to try this. And he put it on, and I went out, and I just couldn't believe how much more downforce the car had. Um, it was unbelievable. And it was only a small component. But in doing so, they had to alter something like the heat exchanger. Um, and what happened was the bloody heat exchanger, the well broke, and let all the water out, and that put paid to that. I was 20 seconds and doing it easy. Yeah. So very stupidly, which I now regret, I, I just jumped in the car and went back to London. I was that pissed off. But I really should have stayed and helped them celebrate and... And, and, and shared the joy that they had. But that just wasn't me at the time. I was just so competitive that everyone could get rooted. I was off. Um, but, you know, I was a bit... I'm peeved. sure Frank shared your pain. Oh, he, well, he did. He, he understood completely. You know, he just said, yeah. AJ, sorry. You know, he apologised. He said, mate, look, you know. And then the very next race was the German Grand Prix and I won it. And he came up to me and he said, AJ, you don't seem very thrilled. You don't seem excited. I said, no, um, you know... This is something I should have done a couple of races ago, and I wanted to win your first Grand Prix, so I'm pissed off that it that I'm ne then I went on to win three in a row. So um, you know, it's funny. It's a funny old sport, Formula One. That, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I really would have liked to have won his first Grand Prix. But I was really happy that I won the British Grand Prix for him um, the following year at Brands Hatch. So that was good.
Let's talk more about that following year. You had Reutemann as your teammate, of mm-hmm. course. Actually, no, let's talk about that Reutemann relationship and how it evolved. And I mean, spiky, I think we could call it that, couldn't we? Well, it didn't start off that way. I mean, at the end of the day, Carlos was just another teammate. I didn't didn't have any perceived or preconceived um, ideas about him. You know, I how was your relationship when you weren't teammates prior to him coming to Williams? Oh well, my relationship with most drivers was pretty vague. I never really used to socialise with any of them, and never. I mean, apart from sort of getting on the odd bus to go somewhere with all the other drivers. Or maybe if you were staying at a hotel on a, on a, on a test day, like not a non-racing weekend, where you might bump into them at breakfast or something. Would you I, sit with them? Uh, no, preferably not. Um, I just wanted to do my own thing. You know, I didn't want to let my guard down in any way. Um, and I used to, Do you regret that in hindsight? No, not at all. Um, I actually, I'd, I'd have breakfast with Jody. I got on okay with Jody. Ronnie was a lovely bloke. I got on all right with him, but the rest of them, really, I couldn't give two shits about. To be honest with you, because they were enemies, effectively. Well, they were just they were just things that had to be passed, um, and that was it. <laughs> things. Um, yeah. And I just took the personality out of it completely. Yeah. I didn't say, "Oh, here comes such and such. I've got to get past him." It was just the thing that was on the circuit that had to be passed at all costs. So why and when did it break down so badly with well, Carlos? Well, I tell you, it was very simple. Um, Frank had laid out a, 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 a deal whereby, and it was Frank's idea, not mine, um, and quite rightly when you look at it, he said, I'm not paying for two cars travel halfway around the world to be comfortably in the lead, comfortably in the lead, and have the two drivers take each other out. Um, so he, he brought up a set of rules which I, I thought would never come into play because I think that we had to be more than... I think we had to be more than 10 seconds in front of whoever was third. We had to be less than a second apart from one another. Um, so there was all these sort of criterias that had to be met. And I thought, well, that's pretty unlikely. That probably won't happen. Did he lay, he, he lay down the law at the start of the season? At or? the start. Well, right. no, Carlos signed the contract. It was in his contract. It was in his contract and he signed it. This is the thing that upset me. And your contract. No, no, it wasn't in my contract, but it didn't have to be because it was in his. Um, and he told me that what he'd put in Carlos's contract, so that was good enough for me. I just said, right, well, if he's put that in his contract and Carlos has signed it, well, that's the deal. And then we went to the first race, which was Long Beach, and Carlos had been on the major fitness campaign and eating raw meat and Christ knows what, and he was going to come back with a vengeance. And uh, he, he was leading and, and went wide, and in doing so, I zipped down the inside of him and actually won the race. And I don't think he was terribly happy with that, but that, that was his blue, not mine. And then we went to, um, I think it was uh, Capuranga or whatever it was, in Brazil, and it was raining. And I think we were on the front row or we were up there, and um, off we went. And we were literally half a second apart for the majority of the race. And I thought, well, I won't take any chances here because it's wet, if I go up the inside of him, lock a wheel up, or he comes on me, we're going to hit and have each other off, which is exactly what Frank didn't want. Um, I said, I'll, I'll just stick here. And if the situation presents itself, if he goes wide, slips a bit wide, I'll, I'll, I'll zip in. But if he doesn't, I'll just stay where I am. So with about 10 laps to go, I thought, this bugger's not going to do anything. And I thought, oh, I know what he's going to do. He's going to, like, with about one lap to go, he's going to 
pull over and put the hand out the cockpit and the big magnanimous sort of, I had to do it, it was my race, but, you know, blah, 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 which I didn't care. I was going to win a Grand Prix. I didn't care what he did. And, um, but he didn't do it. He just kept going. And, um, and I thought, well, that was really bad because I understand if you're a racing driver, you're competitive, and I understand the difficulty it must be to, to, to give a race away or to have to pull over or, you know, to the guy behind you. But he should never have signed the contract if that's what he was never going to do. That was my gripe. That was my... But it's funny how circumstances work out because it was pouring with rain. I got to the podium and no one was there, literally. So I've hopped out of the car and I thought, well, where is everybody? I'm not standing around here in the bloody rain. They can all go to buggery. So I actually went back to the garage. Of course, that was immediately translated in me having the shits and storming off in a huff because of what happened. But honest to God, that wasn't the truth. The fact of the matter was, I just didn't want to be out there in the rain. So it's funny how things are translated. And then, um, so then how what... did the conversations go after the race? What well, did you say? I didn't talk to him. Um, Why not? Well, because he's not a man of his word. I mean, if I shake your hand or sign a contract, I adhere to it. Or if I don't like what's in the contract, I don't sign it. Simple as that. Um, so did you ever confront him face-to-face about this? Uh, well, I don't think I actually brought it up in those in, in that exact terms, like, Carlos, you signed the contract, you should, because, I mean, I wasn't his boss. That was Frank's job to say that, not mine. I was his teammate. Um, you know, I mean, what, he's, what he signed and why he didn't adhere to it is... Is not my problem. I, I didn't pay his wage, uh, but but he but he knew I was pissed off. Let me tell you. So what did Frank say to you? What did you say to Frank? Well, Frank fined him financially uh, for doing it, and I never forget because it was quite funny because the next race was Buenos Aires, and um, I had to have a police escort from the airport to the hotel basically you're a marked man i guess well taxi drivers were going past giving me the bird and christ knows what and then even when i went to the first practice session at the circuit the bloody marshals were giving me the bird and i thought christ i hope i don't bloody flip over and catch on fire or something these bastards will let me burn and, you know they were well pissed off that you know they're, they're carless you know and um so from then i just said to him all bets are off all bets are off mate like you know at the end of the day uh and i said to frank Frank, all bets are off, mate. Like, as far as I'm concerned, we can be the other side of the world. We can be in Timbuktu. I'm having a go. If he's in front of me and there's a space, I'm having a go. Just like if he was in another team, another competitor. And Frank understood that, I would guess. Well, the he wasn't terribly Frank, happy with it, but yeah. he understood. He said, yeah. oh, Alan, you know, yeah. it's only Frank could do, you know. But yeah. Alan, Alan, please, you know I'm sure we can work What did this. Patrick say? Um, oh, well, Patrick's a racer. You know, he just stormed off and... Yeah. Let them bloody sort it out, yeah. or something like that. But um, they're only employees. Um, <laughs> didn't it, didn't Patrick once say drivers are like light bulbs? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and Frank yeah. said too. You know, they're just employees. And 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 I understand that because I I said to my wife, I said, you know what? If I got killed, the first thing Frank probably would say, shit, poor old Alan, I liked him. Second thing he'd say, shit, now who can we get to replace him? And that's fair enough. I completely understand and appreciate that because I would do exactly the same thing. He's running a Formula One team. His job is to win Grand Prix. And so, therefore, if his driver injures himself or can't drive the car, his second or his first and only thought should be, who can we replace him with that's going to do the job? And and it works both ways. Um, you know, and I think, I think in those days particularly, I don't know about now, but we're all pretty mercenary. Um, because, you know, there was the odd person getting killed here and there. And I remember racing at um, South Africa, and I went through this really quick 
right-handed that leads onto the pit straight. And rear suspension broke, and I spun up the road, and thank Christ didn't hit anything or roll, but I came to a stop not too far from the pit wall where Frank was standing. So I charged over there and said, this is why I want the fucking money. You know, this is why I want it on time, you know, because I don't want my wife writing your letter saying, where's Alan's money, you know. Um, yes, Did you worry about the dangers? Did you think No, about I never it? worried about the dangers. I worried about the money. Um, you know, I've never... I've never been a sentimental sort of bloke in terms of trophies or any, um, you know, any of that. I've, I've, just give me the money. Like I was doing a dangerous job, doing it fucking well as far as I was concerned, giving 110% and I wanted my dough. No but as more. you said goodbye to your wife to go to a Grand Prix, did you ever stop and think I might never see her again? Yeah, sure. I used to say at the beginning of the year I'd get all the best clothing I could, protection, which normally in those days was Simpson. I'd make sure all my insurances were in place. I made sure that because she was living in London and we're from Australia, I made sure that if anything ever happened, she'd either be able to get back to Australia or they'd be able to come over to England or whatever. Did all of that and then I just buckled down and got on with it. And didn't then, think about it again? No, no. And, um, you know, I mean, I remember when I bought the farm back here in Australia I, and I thought I was going to be a farmer, which was a joke in itself, but... Um, you know, I, it's probably true to say that the older I got, and particularly when Christian came along, I did actually give a bit more thought about being around for his 21st than, than I did before he came. Uh, but otherwise, I never really thought about the, the danger p- p- part of it. You know, Is that something, I mean, some people listening to this may not be aware that your old man, Stan, was a, was a racing driver, a very good one mm, as well back yeah. in the 50s. One actually at Albert Park, didn't he? Well, he was the first Australian ever to win a Grand Prix outside of Australia, albeit yeah. the New Zealand one, which doesn't count really. Um, and he won he won the Australian Grand Prix, and to this day we're still the only father and son to have ever won the Australian Grand Prix, which is the thing I'm very, very proud of. And he was a bloody good driver. He was a very tough bloke, he would give no corner. Um I, I remember because people say to me, oh, "How do you get into? How did you get into racing?" And I often wonder how other people got into racing because I grew up in that environment. To me, it was a natural progression. Ever since I can remember, I was going to be a racing driver because it was like the family business. That's what Dad did. Because Dad sold cars, didn't he? That yeah, was his yeah, business yeah. business. Yeah. And then the racing was <laughs> something on the side. Yeah, really. yeah. I mean, in those days, people paid for their own racing. You know, I mean, you'd spend you know fifty grand to enter a race, and if you want it, you got a pair of socks and what was and a t-shirt or something. AJ, what was Dad's reaction? When you said, yeah, this is what I want to do. Uh, well, I mean, I started racing when I was 15 or 16, a little mini. And, of course, he helped me. You know, we, we bought this mini out of a repossession yard. The engine was in the boot. And uh, gave it to a guy called Brian Sampson to do it up. And then I, my first race was at Geelong Sprints. It was sprints. And then after that, I did something at Calder and I did some road races. And then he had a Cooper Climax and a few other things hanging around the house. So... I pinched the Cooper Climax and went out to Calder and, and raced that. And I remember because I didn't, I didn't have any goggles, so I wear a pair of sunglasses, which, you know, how stupid was that? Like one stone, it would have been Hello Helmet Marco. Um, and so uh, I think he just thought, well, as long as he's enjoying himself. And, but he was funny. You know, if I did really well, he'd say, well, so you should. And if I didn't do very well, he'd, he'd, he'd criticise me and get so in So he's me. quite hard on you. Oh, shit, yeah. So how, how difficult was it to get the break to Europe? I mean, the world was a bigger place back then, wasn't it? Just talk us through how you, you well, came was, to come I to I mean, Europe. look, it's never easy, you know, but it's, it's probably harder now. But, you know, all I know is I jumped on a ship, went to a... Went to England. I lobbed there genuinely with fifty quid in my pocket, 
I bought, and what were you going to do? What was the plan? Buy and sell cars. I was going to buy and sell minivans to poor unsuspecting New Zealand Australian tourists uh, because at that stage they'd all go to England, they'd all congregate around Australia House, they'd buy dormobiles or they'd buy minivans and they'd go to Europe and camp in them and go to all the camping things and Brian Maguire, my, my best friend, whose father actually happened to be my father's spare parts manager in the Holden dealership, um, we started selling these things. And It sounds like you had a good little business going on. Oh, mate, we were, like, in, in 19... How old were you when you were doing this? Oh, only eight, 19 or something, or, you know, and we yeah. thought it would go forever like all kids, you know. We just thought that bloody, we were having it away big time and... You know, like in 1967 or 68 or something, like we were earning a thousand pound a week each, and that was paying. But mind you, we were spending fifteen hundred pound a week because you know we were paying for our own racing. You know, we'd go and buy. I had about six credit cards, so I'd go and buy a bloody set of tyres and then use that credit card to pay that credit card, and that's how we survived. Um, uh, and it was good fun. We, 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 you know, we raced at all the races around England and, and, and learned our craft, and it was fantastic fun. And how much of a blow was it? I mean, it's almost a silly question, but Brian passed away, accident at Brands Hatch. How did that affect you personally and also professionally? Because, of well, course, the business would have suffered I'd as well. Well, sort of hardened up a bit because I'd actually made it into Formula One, and he and I had sort of broken up a partnership in business amicably because okay. I'd decided... I went to England to race, not to sell cars. And he wanted to concentrate more on the on the cars, selling them, and um, which he did, and ended up by making a lot of money. He owned a company called Windmill Motor Caravans and m- making a huge amount of money to the extent where he bought an ex-Williams Formula One car and raced it in a series called the Aurora Series. And, um, and I remember telling him, I said, Brian, mate, you're in a Formula One car you've got to make sure this bloody thing's prepared well. Like, you know, it, I mean, keep in mind that this car not so long ago was probably stripped down to the bare chassis and rebuilt after every race. Uh, well, not so much in Frank's case then, but... Um, and, you know, and what happened was he was at Brands and he was going into Dingledell, I think it's called, which is just after Stirling, and he put his foot on the brake and the fulcrum pin at the base of the brake pedal broke or came out and he just literally didn't have any brakes. And he mounted the curb, went upside down over the fence and decapitated himself on the marshal's post on the, on the other side of the fence. But by that stage, I was actually racing for Shadow and I was in F1. So I sort of toughened up a little bit. And yes, I mean, I was extremely sad because he was my best mate uh, that he was killed. But in no way, shape or form did that affect me one iota in terms of my racing. Well, you drove for some great names in the, in the history. Well, <laughs> lunatics, but I'm thinking Surtees, yeah, Graham yeah, lunatics, Frank, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, Carl Haas. Um, yeah. Oh, Carl was a fantastic just, bloke. Just talk us through what it was like, those different guys. I mean, let's start with John, John Surtees. Well, well John, John was a strange individual. I mean, John wanted to get back in the car via his drivers. And you talk to anybody that's ever driven for John. And I'm, you know, like... People say you shouldn't speak ill of the dead. Well, as far as I'm concerned, just because they're dead doesn't mean to say, you know, what, why it doesn't alter their character or what they was, what, what they were. Uh, I mean, Halewood drove for him. You hear all these horrific stories, you know, and um, Tim Schenken and, and, and a few other people drove for him. They all say the same. You know, he was impossible. Why was he impossible? Well, for a start, he'd go down to Goodwood and test the car himself and he'd take the wings off. And you'd say, John, what do you got the wings off for? Oh, because I want to see how good the suspension is. 
And you'd, you'd say, well, John, but, you know, with like 1,500 kilos of downforce, that alters the, the character of the suspension, you know? And if you're nine seconds off the pace, it's all going to feel lovely anyway. Oh, yeah. So then, we, then we'd go through this farcical bloody nonsense every Grand Prix where he had that full nose on and he'd have a splitter which come out the front and he'd have these two side things, aluminium, that go up. So you'd go to the Grand Prix, they'd all be in. And, oh, well, good year, bought out new tyres, and I think this, this is what we've been after. Yeah, right. At the end of practice, without a doubt, 100%, they'd be, the splitter would be full out again, the side things would be full up again, same old problem. To give you an instance, every time I changed gear, I used to skim my knuckles because the gear stick used to skim again. And I said, John, you've got to do something. I can't change gears properly. No, that's good. You, you tell me these things. That's good because... Um, We'll incorporate that in next year's car because um, I don't really want to put a bubble on the side of the cockpit because it won't be symmetrical. And you say, well, fuck being symmetrical. I want to change gears. So I remember going having a dice with Brambilla at Nürburgring and we, we touched and spun over the Ardenau Bridge and that's because I couldn't get a gear properly. So I went back and just like got into him. And um, he, he just wouldn't put this bubble in the side of the cockpit because he said it wasn't symmetrical with the other side. And... I mean, I had dinner with Vern Schuppen last night, and he drove for him. And you drove, you talk to anybody that drove Everyone for him. I mean, John way. Watson. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was one instance where I, I think it was Waddy or somebody they were testing down at Rickard, and um, John had a phone call. He had to go back to London, so they did something to the front of the car. They added a bit of extra aluminium, or did I forget what the exact thing was, uh, and went a second quicker. John came back, half-pie fired the bloke who'd put it on, blew up like a bad dress, and made them take it off. And they said, but John, we found a second. No, it looks ugly, or well, he didn't think of it or something, but you know, that was the sort of guy he was. He was just yeah, very, very difficult. Frustrating. Very difficult to drive for. Well, what about Graham Hill? Well, Graham was a lovely character. I mean, I sort of, I loved Graham, but he was a bloody um, snake oil salesman. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, he could be in the motorhome blowing up with Betty and screaming and carrying on. Uh, a member of the press would knock on the door and then um, the old smile had come on with the moustache. He, he reminded me of that bloke that, uh, you know, with the big moustache that drove that big pink car. What, um, Dudley, um, Dustedly, Dustedly Dudley or whatever, you know. He reminded me of him, you know, like... Uh, yeah. He, he was a charming man but um he he could sort of be quite forceful and everything you know behind the scenes but he could turn did on he, the... did he meddle with car setup in the way that john surtees did no not to, no i think nobody did the way john did right. uh graham really didn't sort of meddle as such like that because he had engineers and he left it up to them and mm. but um no, he, he wasn't bad i mean i remember i got fifth for him at the nurburgring and he offered me a lift back to England in his plane. And um, I was saying, John, uh, there's a jumbo just up the road. And he, oh, okay, thank you. He was very, you know, and then we went, went back to where he kept the plane. We had a pint of beer and because uh, that was his first point. And I think it was his best result ever, fifth place. Um, so he, he, he was a, he was a, a likeable sort of a rogue, Graham. You know, he was, um, but, but, but I guess he was a Formula One driver, so we're all bloody half stupid or difficult or whatever lovable rogues yeah did i read somewhere that you know you were you could have been on that plane on the fake absolutely absolutely i was going to go down to paul rickard to test the new car 
And then I got a phone call saying, no, we're taking Tony down, Tony Bryce. I said, oh, okay. And um, I, I just left it at that. And I was having a party at my place and John Hogan rung me up. It was New Year, Christmas Eve, I think it was, or somewhere around there. And he said, oh, Alan, um, Graham's had a shunt. He's flown into the side of a hill and they've killed a lot of them. And I went, Christ, when there for the grace of God, could I could have been, you know, so it's destiny. So then we've discussed uh, the Williams era. I want to ask you about why Why did you pull the plug at the end of 81? You Good were question. at the height of your powers as a racing driver. You were Your earning potential was still huge. I know. <laughs> yes. That's what Frank keeps telling me. Uh, <laughs> well, what was the thought well, process? I know it was a bit silly, because I guess because I'd sort of struggled and, and, and never sort of had it easy um, to get to Formula One. And then when I got myself in a competitive car, I was my own worst enemy. I mean, I was very, very competitive. And, you know, if I qualified any lower than the second row, I used to go back and bash myself up in the hotel. For instance, I'd never go down to the swimming pool because I would never risk being sunburnt. Um, and I used to look at Lafitte and some of those guys. They'd take their golf clubs to the, to the meetings and after practice they'd go off and have a game of golf. Well, I'd no more do that than fly to the moon. It was just absolute... To the extent where it was detrimental to me, I, I admit that now. And I was putting enormous pressure on myself. You were too intense, do you think? Well, I was. I was too intense when it came to the racing. I mean, it was just, that was all I wanted. You know, it was just that or nothing. And then as soon as I started accumulating a few bob, I bought the farm back here in Australia and I bought a house and then Christian was born. And, and then you think, well, you know, maybe maybe the hunger wasn't there the way it was a bit earlier. I don't know, but... And then I was getting sick of the travel and then the politics, you know, in Formula One, they were still bloody as bad then as what they are now and that silly ballest was going around. Did winning the title affect your hunger in some way? I've done that now. I've, I've, I've achieved the ultimate no, in my No, it didn't, sport. funnily enough, because uh, at that stage there was very few back-to-back -back champions and there was all this crap going around about how, how that, what you just said, exactly affected your, 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 your desire. And for me, it didn't because, in actual fact, I think it helped me. In fact, if you talk to Frank or anybody, I drove better in 81 than I did 80. Do you feel that you drove Absolutely, better? absolutely, because I felt I had nothing to lose. I'd already got a championship and it would have been lovely to add another one and prove everyone wrong about the back-to-back -back business. Um, and, and I should have won the second one. I mean, I know fifths and nuts were fruits and nuts would all have a Merry Christmas, but I, I should have won that. I should have won, I should have won 79, 80, and 81, but, you know, uh, I didn't, so there's no... But, but I drove, I think I drove better in 81 than I did 80 and I had stupid little mechanical failures and a few bits that just let me down and I think it was a combination of that um, and the travel and, um, and in those days keep in mind that we didn't have mobile phones, there was no cable TV, you know, you'd go down to Paul Rickard and test in, in winter and it'd be dark at four o'clock so you'd go back to your hotel room. You couldn't watch TV because I was too stupid to speak any other languages. I didn't read books. So you'd be hanging around your bloody room twiddling your thumbs for about four hours waiting for the frogs to open up their restaurant because, you know, they don't eat until about midnight or something. Um, and that gets pretty sort of boring and, and, and lonely, you know, when you're by yourself. And I used to go for walks through the village because you can only do that so often. Um, did you miss Australia? Were you yes, homesick? I did. I missed the weather. I hate hate English. I, I love English people. I must be one of the few Australians that like your beer. <laughs> I don't like that the flat stuff, but I like the Tetleys and I like the creamy stuff, you know. Um, but 
I miss the weather and I, and I miss my mates to a certain degree. I just miss the lifestyle. And I and the weather used to get me down. It used to get into my bones. You know that cold, bloody. Oh ugh, yeah. You know. I can relate to that. So, how it. much notice did you give Frank? Not as much as I should have. I, so I when think. did you inform him of your decision to walk away? I think at Las Vegas, um, which was basically the last race, um, because I wasn't sure myself. Um, you know, I I sort of wanted to keep going, but I didn't, and I was trying to leave options open to myself. And I don't know, I must have... Were you out of contract with Frank at that point? Yeah. Yeah, I think I only used to do one-year contracts with him anyway because I always worked on the basis that um, if he didn't want me, he could flick me, and if I didn't want him, I could flick him. So we're talking, if if it was Vegas, you're at the end of the season, had anyone else approached you about 82? Any other teams? Oh, yeah. I mean, at the end of 1980, um, I had a lot of approaches. And because Frank Frank thinks we had agreed a price, which I didn't think we had. And um, at that stage, you know, this is how stupid and childish the whole thing gets. You know, you wanted to be the highest paid Formula One driver. It wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't matter if the other bloke was only getting 10 bucks. As long as you got 15, you're happy, you know. So, in fact, there were, I think, two teams or, yeah, flew solicitors out to... Um, Montreal to talk to me about signing a contract. Can you, can you tell me which teams they were? Oh, uh, well, Renault and Alpha. Right. And um, and I thought, so I let Frank know that, of course, obviously. And he said, Alan, but what I'm offering you is, because I wanted dollars, and he said, what I'm offering you is almost the same. In, and I said, no, I because I knew Jodie Schechter was getting X amount, you see. And um, I, and I wanted to be the highest paid driver. So anyway, he begrudgingly sort of came around and said, right, oh, um, and then I went on and won the, the, the very next race at Watkins Glen. And, uh, and then I won the, the race after that, the first race of the season at, uh, at, at Long Beach. Um, and I've, I've always had a thing in business and or in racing. If I do a deal, I stick to it. And I expect other people to do the same thing. And my, one of my sayings is, I don't want any more. I don't want any less. I just want what the deal was at the time, on time. Do that, everyone's happy. And, and Frank was good with that. Like he, um, he, I think he sort of got the shits. He thought I was sort of holding him over a barrel, which I, I probably was to a certain degree. But it was reasonably unintentional because I was just bloody looking after my own interest because who else was going to? And so I, I did a deal. But in 19, at the end of 81 at Vegas, he came up and said, Alan, I want you to come back to England and drive the six-wheeler at Donington. I said, oh, Frank, I don't want to go back. Because like- were you living in... California at the time. No, I was. We had a house. At that st- I, had, I bought a house in California, but right there, I'd actually, I'd, I think I'd already gone back to Australia, and I flew to Vegas to do the race, and I had visions of hopping on the plane and going back home. And of course, when he said, "Can you come back to England and test the six wheeler?" I mean, I think that was November, or it was it was bloody cold, and I I flew into England. I remember I stayed at a motel near Donington. And Jaguar gave me a road car, and in those days there was no centre lock. You had to use a key in the, in the, in the door to open it. You know, I got up the next morning, bloody couldn't turn the key because the lock was frozen, and I got in the motorhome and all the steel was really cold to touch, you know, because when you were putting your overalls on, everything was bloody cold, and you'd hop in the car and you'd take a breath and all the bloody steam would come out of your mouth. I said, oh, no, Jesus, I don't want this, you know, because I... Kept thinking, of course, back home at that time of the year, it was all beaches and barbecues and beer and beautiful, you know. Um, and I drove the six wheel, and I thought I didn't really, I didn't feel any difference. I mean, 
probably if the thing would have been an absolute super weapon, if it would have given me the feeling that the 06 did when I first hopped into it, I probably would have said, yeah, well, okay, shit, I'm signing on for another year. But because it really didn't grab me or it, it, it just felt like the 06, it didn't feel any different. Did it, well, I imagine, they banned it anyway. But I'm, I'm guessing, did it not have phenomenal traction with those four? Not really. No, no, not really. I... Um, I didn't, it wasn't night and day in anything. It wasn't a night and day situation. And, and to the extent where it didn't grab me, it didn't sort of send me a message and say, listen, you and I in this thing, we can go places. Uh, and, and had it done that, I'm pretty sure I probably would have signed on for another year, to be honest with you. But it didn't. So I thought, well, no. Nah, Just um, a combination of everything. The car didn't yeah. do it for you. The weather was yeah. foul. Yeah. And needed a change. Yeah. Was it, could you say you were burnt out in some way? Yes. Yeah, Because you didn't help yourself a few years earlier. I mean, you were racing Can-Am, you were racing Formula One. You spent more time in the air than you did on the ground. Well, that was in 1978, and that was sort of necessity because, like, at the end of the day, I wasn't getting all that much money from Shadow. And uh, I'd already agreed to do Can-Am for Carl Haas uh, before I'd done the deal with, with uh, Frank because I thought, as a backstop, I mean, I was talking to a lot of Formula One teams... And I thought, well, if I put the K&M deal in the bag, at least I've got that. You know, I know I, that's a fallback and I can probably be a bit more aggressive on my dealings uh, knowing that I've got something to fall back on if, if something fails. And thankfully, Frank allowed me because I said, well, you know, I have, I've signed a contract to do K&M with Carl Haas. And he said, well, I'd already done the deal. So he, he, he obviously agreed to it. So you're right. I mean, I was literally racing one weekend in America one weekend in uh, Europe, and in between, testing the Formula One cars at the circuits. So I was on a bloody plane all the time. But the thing that keeps you going is that um, I was winning in Can-Am. Dominating in Can-Am. Dominating in Can-Am. Yeah, and that's always a help. And and I like driving for Carl Haas. He was a lovely... His wife, Bernie, they were fabulous people to drive for. Uh, No aggro, no politics... It just got on with the job. The car was beautifully prepared. I had the best engines, the best chassis, and we were winning races and I was earning money. So happy days. Happy um, days. So that compensates for a lot of tiredness and uh, a lot of... But yes, you're right. I mean, at the end of that... I, I remember testing at Rickard. Uh, Patrick designed um, some new wing plates for the rear wing and he made them out of balsa wood. <laughs> and I remember thinking, shit, wood... You know, but of course, we all know now that some of the early aircraft were made of wood and, and done right. It's as strong as anything. But I've got to tell you, when I looked at it, I thought, oh, hang on. But I remember, I'll never forget it. I, st- I think we started at eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning. What year are we talking about? 78. Right. We started seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning. And apart from about half an hour break at lunch, we stopped at 6 o'clock and just kept going. I don't know how many miles I did. And I remember we went back to the motel at Marseille to get the flight back to England, uh, but we stayed at the motel. And I remember going into that room and just literally throwing myself on the bed and falling asleep fully dressed. That's how buggered I was. Sober. Uh, Yeah, so I just, I mean, obviously caught up a little bit. But then I came back to Australia, recharged my batteries, got under control, and then then came back and um, started again. Okay, so you quit at the end of 81. You come back to Australia. Mm -hmm. Just few words on the farm how big is it was it, it was 2000 acres right what did you grow uh well i was breeding simmental cattle, cattle whole simmental yeah. which is there any farming stock in the family is it no some, no, no, no so it was no, a new thing no. oh well my wife's dad was a farmer 
Okay, so it was in the family. So was it slightly driven by the wife? Yeah, to a certain degree. Yeah. I think she wanted stability and she certainly wasn't adverse to having a nice life on the farm. We were only about an hour and 10 minutes out of Melbourne, so we could pop down. We had a house in Kew, so we could pop down. Um, you know, and I had these visions of raising these cattle and we were raising merino superfine uh, wool to go into like Italian suits and everything. And I had all these grandiose ideas. I used to get a thing called ag notes, which were brought out by the Agricultural Society, giving people hints on, it was almost like a cookbook, you know. Um, but then, as I said, like the first, I remember the first winter, you know, I was in bed freezing because where the farm was, it wasn't all that far from the snowfields. And the manager sort of knocked at the front door and he said, there's a fox out there chasing the lambs. And I said, yeah. He said, well, grab your gun and we'll get out. And I said, no, fuck it, let it take a few. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm too cold, you know. And I thought, no, I'm not a farmer. Um, so Did you miss Formula One? Well, I didn't initially. I, 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 I thought, no, this is great. And I had my moleskins and my riding boots. And, you know, I was, uh, I was going to be the farmer, you know. Mm. And um, But then I'll never forget, I was uh, slashing. I had a, a paddock next to the house, which was 100 acres. And I thought, oh, I've just bought this new air-conditioned tractor, and I thought, oh, I'll get out and I'll slash the paddock. And um, 100 acres takes a long time to slash, which I had no idea. I mean, like about five hours later, I was only about halfway through it. And I'll never forget a plane flew over, and I thought, I wonder where that's going. I wouldn't mind being on that. And then I thought, this is, you know, I could, I could probably earn more buying and selling cars in Melbourne or something in, in half a day than I can as a farmer in two weeks. And then um, I then got backed off a horse and broke my femur. And uh, I thought I was laying in hospital and Jackie Oliver rang me up and said, um, we've got a deal for you. And at that, it was the right timing because that was at the time when I just I sort of realised I wasn't a farmer. That was 83, right? Yeah. Can I just, before you tell us that yeah. story, can I go back a time? Because 8th of May 1982, Gilles Villeneuve was tragically killed at the Belgian yep. Grand Prix. Yep. Am I right that people from Ferrari were interested in hiring you to replace him? No, not him. No, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I was up in surface and I got a phone call from Figueri, I think it might have been, one of them. We're talking 82? Yes. Yep. It was when Peroni rang up the backside of somebody at Hockenheim. Ah, oh, it was Peroni, not Villeneuve. Okay. And they rang me up and said, we'd like you to come back and take his place. Once again, being a child and stupid, uh, I, I deliberately just mucked them around because I thought, well, I've got a good memory. And I used to get someone to answer the phone and say, look, he's just down at the butchers or he's just somewhere and they'd be ringing back. And, and the ironic part about it is because they couldn't get me, they hired Andretti. So, you know, it's a funny old world, isn't it? Small world. And, you know, it's so stupid because I should have taken it up because I was still race fit to a certain degree. I hadn't been out of a car that long and I could have gone back and I should have driven for Ferrari. And lo and behold, Andretti goes there and puts the bloody thing on pole at Monza. Now, can you imagine if I would have said to the Italian press, I've come out of retirement, the only team I would ever have come out of retirement for was Ferrari. I mean, you could play them like a violin. You'd never have bought a plate of spaghetti in Italy ever again for the rest of your life. Uh, but quite stupidly, I, I, I didn't do it. And of course, That's something I really regret. And of course, AJ, the crazy thing is that had you gone and raced for them in 82, they won 
the Constructors' Championship in 83, and you might have I got did. that second championship in 83. It's Jones's Law, Tom. <laughs> you've, heard, you've heard of Murphy's Law. Jones's Law shits all over it, I'm telling you. I mean, Murphy's Law piles into insignificance. But listen, you, were, you said you were mucking them around because you could and you got a I good memory. I just had some sort of perverse pleasure. But at some point, did you not think, I need to stop mucking them around and actually get myself over to Europe and test the car? And No, I didn't. Uh, I was sufficiently happy enough to a certain degree that I'd muck them around because okay. I, at that stage, I, I didn't really care whether I went back or not. And in hindsight, as I said, I should have. So then, looking a little bit further ahead, you'd race for Carl Haas, of course, in Can-Am. Now the, what is it, the, the Lola project in the mid-80s with the Ford turbo engine. I mean, any regrets that you took that one up? Yes and no. Um, the bank manager was very happy I took it up. Um, Be honest with us, AJ. Did you earn more money from that than at any other time in your career? Yeah, probably. Right. Yeah. I see why you did it. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I think I got paid $1.6 million or something hmm. back in those days. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. fucking oath. I mean, it was more yeah. than what I was going to earn in the farm. Yeah. And, you know, I was told that, you know, we were going to have the best of this and the best of America. You're going to see American muscle at its best, you know. Yeah, yeah right. Um, and we were going to have this new Ford Cosworth engine. And obviously, you know, Cosworth doesn't have a bad reputation. Let's face it, they, they do build the odd good engine. And we were going to have this chassis, which was going to be designed by Neil Oatley, which Neil's a great designer because he's an ex-Williams bloke, which most of the good designers are. And so he designed, you know, like an all-carbon fibre car. We were going to have the works. We were going to have Goodyear tyres because being an American company, of course, they were very keen for us to run on Goodyears. Uh, Brand new factory, brand new transporter, brand new everything. I thought, well, bloody hell. Um, this is this is an opportunity, and hopefully, if it works, terrific, you know. And and also, it was going to be the very first year of the Australian Grand Prix that counted towards the World Championship, and that had a little bit of a factor in my decision to come back to Formula One because it would have meant coming back to Australia and d- doing a Formula One race in front of Australians. But um, it, it just turned out to be a complete disaster. I mean, the engine was just completely gutless. But before that came along, we were, had Brian Hart engines which were basically modified Formula 2 engines. And they were like little boys trying to do a man's job. And we used to call them the hand grenades because it was never if they blew up, it was when they blew up. Um, But I I think I managed a fourth at Spa, which I thought was pretty good in that thing. Um, And then when the Ford was getting ready, I was told, now, when you race in Australia, don't settle down in Australia because you'll probably have to come to California and do a bit of testing with the engine. Yeah, that's all right. That's fine. That's what I'm here for. Anyway, December came, January came, February came, nothing. Oh, we're going to have to start the season with the Brian Hart engines again because the Ford's not ready. I went, oh, okay. And, of course, uh, Patrick Tambay joined the team, which I used to call him Patrick Tampax, and he never really sussed out what I was talking about. He he just thought it was some idiot Australian not been able to pronounce his name properly. He, he later found out. But um, it was just a nightmare. I mean, it, it had twin turbos, like everyone in those days, but it had the, the, the turbo controls came out of the dashboard, and I kid you not, the dials were Bakelite. And you had to do two laps just to get your bloody um, your boost right. Where Honda and those sort of people had electric. You could just press a button and that's how you used to adjust your boost. I mean, even the Porsche 935 had that. So you, these are all warning signs. You knew immediately that you were not in the same 
ballpark. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I didn't particularly get on all that well with Teddy May. I mean, James Hunt used to call him the wiener, you know. Um, know, And I do hate it when people that you're driving for question something like, are you sure you're trying hard enough? Or something ridiculous like that. You know, you just look at them and think, well... Were you getting those sorts of questions? Some, some it may well, not have been exactly yeah, those yeah, words, no, but, but it was that, in that vein, you yeah, know. Yeah. Um, and I remember being at Monza, and uh, Keith Duckworth came up, and we were something like about forty k's or something ridiculous slower than the Ferraris up the straight. And Keith Duckworth came up and he said, "Oh, you're running a bit of wing." Well, let me tell you, it was like a billiard table, and I said, "Are we? Go down to Ferrari and have a look at their rear wing. They're running a barn door." And they're forty k's quicker down the straight than us, and, and with the with the Cosworth engine, the electrics were being done in America, and the mechanics were being done in Northamptonshire, wherever Cosworth. And what would happen is the Americans would bring out these chips. It'd either drive out of the pits beautifully and be completely gutless on the circuit, or it'd buck and bronk out of the pits like a bloody bronco, virtually undrivable. But once it got on the circuit, it wasn't too bad. And of course, you'd say all this, and they'd think, "Oh no, he's he's a he, belly, you know, prima donna." And you'd be thinking, "Well, I'm not a, like the mm. thing's not right, mate. You know, it's mm. just not it's it's a shit ape, you know." Um, and did it get much better during the course? No. Of the and I did no. something which I'm not particularly proud of. I've never done it in my life, but I got that pissed off that I actually ended up by buying an aeroplane of Carl Hass. Uh, he had a little Mitsubishi MU2, which they used to call the Widowmaker, because it didn't have any ailerons and extremely difficult to fly. And the guy that was my pilot ended up by being Frank Williams's pilot for many, 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 many years. And um, I, we flew down to Portugal in it, and once again the same old thing in practice. Out of the, you know, I was getting to the stage where it was embarrassing, and you just knew that the thing was going to blow up or wasn't going to get anywhere. So I just said to the pilot, listen, <clears throat> go up and buy some sandwiches, make sure we've got some cold grog, get the thing all warmed up and get it ready. And where the motorhome was parked was near a, near a hairpin right behind the pits. So I just threw it into the gravel pit there and uh, went back and said, sorry, boys, a bit of misjudgment. Got my gear, got changed, topped on the plane, went home. And managed to get home in time to eat at my favourite Chinese restaurant, which we used to eat at every Sunday night. Now, I'm not particularly proud of that, but that's how bad things got. Yeah. And I couldn't give her stuff, you know, because I, I thought, right, I'm a big believer. I'll give you 110, but I want 110. You know, if you're not going to do the job, I won't do the job. Mm. And it's like the old, I don't want any more, I don't want any less, but what I've agreed on, I want. And I'm a big believer in that. I've lived all my life that way. And I thought, right, bugger it. Such a frustrating end to what had been up until the end of 81, such a... Yeah, but see, I... It's yeah. funny. I don't even look upon it that way. No. I really don't because I'm not a. I'm not. I don't worry about um, statistics. I don't worry about all. As I said to you before, being terribly mercenary about the whole job. It was money, and at the end of the day, it's other people's problems to worry about. Oh, but you would have been the only person to have ever left retired as a champion, or you know, you did these many fastest laps. So what? You can't eat that. I mean, that's just that's that's numbers in a book. Now, who cares? I don't. Well, talking of numbers in a book, of your twelve victories, which thirteen, was the, I won the Spanish Grand Prix, which blessed. But it was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. It's, that's telling in itself how quickly you came back. Mm-hmm. 
But the record books will tell you it yeah, was of course. 12. Yeah. Um, which was your best? I would You're say... You're going to tell me it was that Spanish Grand Prix? Are you no, 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 no. Um, well, there was two for different reasons. Uh, the best race I think I ever did was at Watkins Glen, upstate New York, immediately the weekend after I'd won the World Championship at Montreal. Uh, and that was the race that uh, Frank changed the engine in. Yep. I did a blinding start, went into the first right-hander, and, of course, as bloody Americans as they do, they, they, they get cement and they just spray it everywhere. Like, you know, like if someone even looked like they might have dropped a bit of oil, they, uh, they, they, they fling this cement all over the bloody joint. So I've gone in there in about second, or might have even hit the lead from about ninth position, and promptly skidded off and uh, went bouncing over the bloody grass. And I thought, oh, shit, I've done my skirts. Because I did a similar thing at Zanvert and buggered up my skirt, which cost me the Dutch Grand Prix. And I, I came back on the circuit and did sort of half a lap just to make sure that it was all okay and still had its downforce and everything. Because I came unstuck one other time at Belgium doing that. I went into a corner and the skirt stuck. And you break at the same spot, you turn in at the same spot, except you haven't got the same downforce. So the thing flew off into the fence and I burnt myself quite badly so anyway once I got back on and sussed it all out I thought right beautiful I'd won the world championship so bang let's go for it and um, I think I came from about 14th or something um, up to I got up to sec uh, and I passed Reutemann around the outside of the right hander at the end of the back straight which in itself was enjoyable I can only imagine yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, and then uh, uh, Giacomelli's Alpha was really going extremely well because that bloody thing had a heap of power. Anyway, it shit itself, and uh, I won the race. And that was probably one of my best races, my most enjoyable races, uh, satisfying races that I'd had, uh, for sure. So, AJ, how do you reflect on it all now, just looking back all these years? I reflect on it by having a wonderful life, meeting beautiful people, travelling the world, um, which very few people will ever get to experience what I've experienced. Uh, and I'm forever thankful of that. And, and, and I think to become a Formula One world champion is, is uh, such a privilege um, that when you think of the amount of young people that even want to get into Formula One that don't make it, let alone the one that don't um, become world champion. I mean, I remember Chris Amon, very fast, highest paid Formula One driver in the world at one stage. You got 70,000 sterling. Never won a Grand Prix. Um, got fastest laps, was leading him, never won a Grand Prix. And so you look back on things like that and you think, well, hey, you know, I won 13 Grand Prix, although in the record book it says 12. Um, as far as I'm concerned, I got up that morning, I went through the motions, I went to the circuit, I got changed, I got in the car, did the full complement of laps, took the chequered flag, was presented the trophy by King Juan Carlos, only to be told by Belest that he had decided the race wasn't going to count uh, because they didn't have a proper seat for his wife or some bloody stupid thing. And I thought, right, but what goes around comes around. The very next race was the French Grand Prix at Paul Ricard. The two Ligiers were on the front row of the grid and the good old French, as usual, they were celebrating Saturday night. And then we just wore them down in the race, passed them and won. And um, I spent the lap going around with the biggest Union Jack I could find, waving it under Belester's nose, and then wouldn't get on the podium while he was there. And he was blowing up, but he had to get off because at that stage TV was coming more and more important in Formula One and they had a TV schedule to adhere to, so they asked him to get off the podium. Well, look, so looking, let's just end this by talking about modern 2019 Formula One. Um, 
I think a lot of people will want to know, what was your take on Dan Ricciardo's switch from Red Bull to Renault? Is that a move you would have made as a racing driver? Yep. Why? Well, because I would have had the shits that they gave Verstappen more money than me. Clearly. Uh, I've learned that over the course of this conversation. That that would have upset me. Um, So when another team came along and offered me considerably more, that would have been a major consideration. Uh, But you were giving... He's given up a lot of performance, though, hasn't he? Well, yes, but at the end of the day, he could find himself at the right place at the right time. And as some wag pointed out to me today, he's now driving for the world's biggest car manufacturer rather than a soft drink manufacturer. And the soft drink manufacturer is owned by one individual that can change his mind like that and has threatened to pull out of Formula One on many occasions. He's almost as bad as Ferrari and that and that sort of thing. So... I think he might have stability in, in, in continuity with the Renault. I think if they do come good, which I think they will, he could be very well placed um, you know, to be a, a consistent podium and he gets a lot of money. So at the end of the day, if his gamble for performance doesn't come off, hey, he's got a heap of dough in the bank. And I know a lot of people are going to listen to this and go, Jesus, Jones, he's a mercenary bastard. Uh, but you've got to take that into consideration because... You, you, your lifespan as a Formula One driver, and I don't mean danger, your lifespan as a Formula One is not that long. I mean, you know, look at Raikkonen still racing at um, 38 or whatever, and they're all saying how old he is. Um, so you've only got a certain amount of time to make hay while the sun shines, so grab it. Okay, so he's made the right move. Final question from me then, who will win the World Championship in 2019? Oh, well, it's a difficult one, but... Um I'm going to stick. I mean, look, you know, Mercs have come out again and sort of shown how good they are, and they are good. There's no, but I, I'm going to stick my neck out and say Vettel, uh, because I think he's learned a few lessons from last year. Those silly little mistakes he made, sliding off and hitting the fence at Hockenheim, I think it was, or somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I think I think he's he would have gone back and reflected a little bit on that. Not that he should have, because he's been in Formula One long enough to not to have to make those mistakes to learn a lesson. But I think you never stop learning, and I think he has learned a few lessons from last year. And I think you, you, you put that with the fact that I think Ferrari are probably going to be a bit more aggressive this year in terms of their uh, development and so forth. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to put him down as a world champion. Brilliant. AJ, thank you so much. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. Really enjoyed having, having you on Beyond the Grid. Well, I hope it's been reasonably informative. and It has. We might have to do a bit of bleeping. Oh, that's all right. Fuck it. (laughs) AJ was in cracking form, wasn't he? You can only imagine what an engineering debrief would have been like between him and Patrick Head. Definitely a no-nonsense affair. Alan came up with some wonderful stories from an era when F1 wasn't as well documented as it is today. He was a great listen. Thanks for your time, AJ. It was lovely to chat. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll be back next week with another special guest from the world of Formula One. And as I say every time, please subscribe to Be On The Grid if you haven't already because we don't want you to miss out. We're on all of your favourite podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I've got another ask for you this week because I'm delighted to say that Beyond The Grid has been shortlisted at the upcoming British Podcast Awards. And there's more. We're also up for a Listener's Choice Award. So if you like the podcast, and I hope you do, why not go to britishpodcastsawards.com forward slash vote and give us a vote. We'd really appreciate it. And thanks for all your messages about last week's show with Chaco Perez. He has lots of fans. 
And not least, Eleanor Bowman, who asks, did Checo buy a watch in honour of appearing on F1 Beyond the Grid? Good point, Eleanor. I'll ask Checo next time I see him. And please keep your feedback coming. We love it. Use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. Thank you.